starting with verse 20. This morning we're going to be finishing up Mark, starting uh, chapter 3, verse 20. And the ha- what happened the last time is we, we looked at Christ's Sabbath healing, we looked at the opposition from the religious leaders, we looked at his selection of the 12 apostles, disciples, and today we're going to see Jesus, you know, this is really the beginning of his ministry, it's been going for a little while, uh, he receives opposition and this there's some themes in there uh, from the inside and from the outside. And you know, when we step up to serve the Lord, we will also receive opposition. It's just a given. Uh, Now, I think at this time I have to explain kind of inductive Bible study so we understand as we look at the life of Jesus, how it can apply to us. You know, observation, interpretation, application. You observe, what does the scripture say? Interpretation, what is what's going on, what's, what is God trying to convey through his word, and also application. How can I take the scripture? Because if we do the first two phases and we neglect to take the scripture and apply it to our lives, then really we're wasting our time. Uh, the, the Bible is supposed to be transforming. You know, Romans ten seventeen it takes the unregenerate soul and regenerates it. So the word of God is very powerful. So when we look at the scripture, we see the uh, interpretation what did Jesus do? What was happening? What does God's word say? Now, when we go to the application phase, we have to ask ourselves, well, how does that apply to me? So I'm going to kind of go back and forth between Jesus stepping up to serve, you know, in the form of a man, but also where our responsibilities lie. Not that we are Jesus. However, as followers of Christ, there is an element of us emulating him. Right? He's, he's our master. We're to be discipled by him. Uh, so as we look at his example, everything, every single thing he did, we can take from the scripture and apply it to our own life. So we're going to look at that. We're going to see what happened to Jesus, and then we're going to apply it to ourselves. So we're going to jump in in Mark 3, verse 20. It says, And the multitude came together again, so that they could not so much as eat bread. It was crowded. Wherever Jesus was, there was a crowd that developed. But when his own people heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. Now, what I love about Mark's gospel is it's very poignant. It's a short gospel. It gets to the point and then moves on to the next subject. But, you know, when you read Mark's gospel, even though it's the shortest gospel, you really got to, you really kind of take a step back as you read it. It's a pretty amazing statement here. You know what I love about the scripture too? It didn't candy coat the message of salvation. It wasn't phony. It showed that even as the Son of God, he received opposition. So, folks, when we step up to serve God, don't be surprised if we receive opposition as well. But it says his own people. Well, you can look at his family, uh, those he grew up with. They thought he's got what we would say today is delusions of grandeur. As a matter of fact, in psychology and behavior, uh, that's a subtype of delusional disorder. Now, here's the irony out of all this. Today, 2,000 years later, when people have these delusional types of disorders, who's the number one person they think they are? Jesus Christ. (laughs) Why? Because of his resurrection, because of his impact on humanity. Even 2,000 years later, we still see this. On a side note, as a police officer for 22 years, I've run into a few who thought they were Jesus Christ. And the first thing I do is call for backup. (laughs) Because you never know what's going to happen. 
But again, the irony there is his own people had this impression of him. And then, of course, when his ministry really takes off, they understand who he is and who is amongst them. Now, why did they believe this? Let's look at this. Let's examine this. Well, everything Christ did had an eternal divine timetable attached to it. So, number one, to take the form of a man. It was said in Scripture, the time that these things would happen. All right, back in the Old Testament. Number two, his death on the cross had a defined timetable. He would often say, it wasn't his time yet. It wasn't his time to die. When he died for you and me and shed his blood on that cross so there would be remission of our sins, there was a certain time that that was supposed to take place. And then he submitted himself to be crucified. Here is what we understand in this passage, why they had an issue and why they thought he's out of his mind, because here is where he kickstarts his earthly ministry. So until then, Jesus appeared to be like everybody else. You know, it's funny. Jesus said something. He said a lot of things that I can't say. He said, which of you convicts me of sin? I mean, that's an open statement. Now, I know I wouldn't say that because... My wife would say, yeah, he's definitely a sinner. I live with him. (laughs) And I know that about myself. But Jesus could make statements like that. So nobody could convict Jesus of sin. They grew up with him. He was a nice kid in the neighborhood, never talked back to his parents. He was the model brother, model citizen. But they weren't willing to take it as far as saying he's the son of God. Not yet, anyway. Not yet. So first thing we see this morning is the opposition from within. Now... His family wasn't bad. You know, they loved him. They were looking out for him. However, they were unknowingly opposing a work of God. Now, this is important because the way we do this less and less is to know God's word, to know his heart through the scripture. God reveals his character through his word. We get to know him as a loving father. Some of us didn't grow up with loving fathers. Some of us grew up uh, in difficult home situations, but, but God is not that way. You know, so we, we have a father in heaven, even if we didn't have one on earth. But I have to tell you, people still do this. They un- unwittingly, unknowingly, and innocently go against God's word because they don't have the full picture. I can't tell you how many times I've heard, well, God told me, well, I've prayed about this, and God is leading me to do something. And I know that what they're telling me is completely against scriptures. Those are one of the most difficult conversations I have to have. Because their feelings, they really believe this. However, the scripture says otherwise, and God will never go back on his word. So the best way not to be in that situation is to know God's word. The scripture said that there was a messianic timetable. And that everybody needed to be looking around in the first century because any minute it was going to happen. Uh, Genesis 49.10, Daniel chapter 9, Haggai 2.7 and 8. These are all messianic scriptures embedded in the old testament that give us a first century timetable for the son of god appearing and we need to know that his family in john 7 even midway through his ministry in john 7 we covered this his brothers didn't even believe and i think they even what they said some things that were a little mocking of jesus however we see in the book of acts that they all get it afterwards you know his mary his earthly mother his brothers they all follow him because they, you know, his death, burial, and resurrection. And then, of course, his ascension into heaven, they become his disciples. As a matter of fact, two of his brothers wrote books in the New Testament under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So you see a complete turnaround in their lives. Now, I'm going to permit me to take verses 31 through 35 together. 
because I'm just going to group these together. I think it's for easier understanding because we have these familial relationships and these relationships that he has. So jump with me to verse 31. It says, Then his brothers and his mother came and standing outside, they sent to him, calling him. Remember back in those days, you know, they didn't have security. They didn't have everything set up all nice. They just was a crowd that gathered. So those that were biologically close to him couldn't get to him because of the crowd. So they send word to Jesus and say, we're out here. We'd like to see you. And a multitude was sitting around him and they said to him, look, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. But he answered them saying, who is my mother or my brothers? And he looked around in a circle at those who sat about him and said, here, are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. Now, some may take this and say, well, that's disrespectful. You know, it wasn't. He turned this, he turned everything into a teaching moment. That's the beauty of the son of God. He's a genius. Well, of course, he's got the mind of God. So everything he does is perfect. I've often heard it said that if we have a bizarre interpretation of the scripture, the problem lies with us and not the scripture. That's absolutely true wasn't being disrespectful. This was a teaching moment. And I'll tell you this, that when we step up to serve the Lord, sometimes we're misunderstood. I see some head shaking. You know what I'm going to, you guys are prophets out there. This is amazing. We're not so misunderstood except by those that are closest to us. You know, when you serve in ministry, hey, don't get, don't get too carried away with this, this God stuff. Hey, take it easy. You know, everything in moderation. You start to hear things like that. Jesus had to be firm. And what he had to do is he had to help us to understand and reprioritize, renegotiate our relationships in life. Because here's the deal. If we put anyone in front of God in our life, it's a recipe for disaster. You know what we'll do? It'll make ineffective and feckless Christians. And then it becomes idolatry. Think about it. You know, well, my job is, I need to make money. You know, that's more important. My relationship with my coworkers, my relationship with my family, my spouse, my boyfriend, my girlfriend, my kids, my grandkids. Anything that we put in front of God is a cause for stumbling, can be a cause for idolatry. And we shouldn't be surprised when we become ineffective. Sadly enough, through my own life, as I look back retrospectively, Um, God removed some relationships from me personally that hurt me deeply, but because he knew that those relationships that I had were unedifying, and uh, he needed to do a work in my life. So he'll do it with you too, if you allow him. Now, what does this mean again? It means that relationships have to be prioritize. What's a double blessing? And I have to tell you this, that when you're really close to somebody, a childhood friend or somebody biologically related to you and they become believers, that's like a super double blessing. You know, there's a a familial tie, right? And then there's also a spiritual tie on top of that. So, and again, this doesn't mean to cut off your relationships. I have a lot of friends from back in the day and my desire is to influence them for Jesus Christ. I want to see them saved. I have some biological relationships. Every pastor I know has family members, whether siblings or whatever. I've talked to them over the years that they're still not saved, but they're really trying to influence them for Jesus Christ. And sometimes some of our relationships are a long haul. We're in it for the long run. Some people come quickly to the Lord. 
Some of them, it takes a long time, and eventually they get there. And if not, you know, God knows. God is good. But Jesus says this, whoever does the will of God, my mother, my brothers, my sisters, whoever does the will of God. And this is important because we don't come to church, we don't study the Bible, we don't get discipled just so we could become big, heady, big, heady Christians. We've got this big, tremendous, like alien head with all this information in there. I mean, that's not the idea. The idea is that we do something with it, that we're trained up and that we go and do something with it. If the Lord teaches us about compassion and mercy, then maybe it's time that he sends us out and just has these you know, relationships. We have these relationships with others outside, and all of a sudden we're just so compassionate and merciful. And you know what I've found? When I've gone through my deepest trials, that has prepared me to be merciful and to have these type of relationships. Because you, you, when you go through a trial, you, you start to not be so self-absorbed and realize that you know, life is just more than our own pursuits. It really gives us a perspective check. And sometimes that pain of those trials, it stretches us and it molds our character and we become more gentle. You know, we become more loving of others. You know, we have the few that minister to us in our dark times and we want to, we when we get better, we want to help everybody else that we can. God can use anything in our lives. But when we're discipled, whether through the word or through another person, at some point, we have to take all that information and walk with it. You know, we're not, we're not the NSA. We're not database collectors. We've got to take that information and walk with it. And you will be expected at times, if you are discipled, to get it, to understand some of the milk before you move on to the meat. You can't give somebody meat of the word if they don't understand the milk of the word yet. So that's important as well. Verse 22. Let's go back to verse 22. It says, And the scribes, the religious leaders, who came down from Jerusalem said, He has Beelzebub, and by the ruler of the demons he casts out demons. Now, in context, and we see this in the other Gospels, when we look at context, what just recently happened? Jesus casted out a demon. So that's why you say, well, where does this come from? That's where it came from. All right, the other Gospels give a little bit more background in the scenery. So he says, by Beelzebub, the religious leaders say. So the second point that we see here is the opposition from without. So in one chapter, Jesus gets it from within. He's out of his mind. <laughs> Look at all these people gathering around. Who does he think he is? And then he also gets it from the outside of his family. So he's getting it in both directions. So that's two. This is the religious system that we're talking about. And don't be surprised when you go past mere religious observance, mere Christian culture, and I'm talking about other believers, don't be surprised where you start to get a little heat. What are you, better than us? Well, you know, you're the, the group that we're in, what, what do you, you know, don't, don't strive too hard with that one, right? So maybe some of you have experienced that. In this situation, these guys, religious leaders, were from Jerusalem. Okay, so that means that they were the cream of the crop. These, this was where the temple was, the spiritual seat, where the priesthood was. So they came out and they came, well, who's this upstart prophet? Who's this miracle worker? And they're, they're going to scrutinize him. Instead of opening their heart, the problem that they had was he wasn't from their clique. So then he must not be good. So then, hey, he must do, be doing this by the ruler of the demons. Now, these religious leaders started with a faulty premise. We can do that when we read the word, you know. 
There's a difference between eisegesis and exegesis. And it comes from the Greek prefixes. Eis means into, E-I-S. We decide what we think about God. So we read stuff into the scriptures. That is deadly spiritually. That is going to throw us off. That's going to, we'll, we'll, we'll be willing to accept cult teachings. It's bad news. Exegesis. Exa means out of. What we do is, what, what does God say? Interpretation. I pull the information out of it, and then I become edified by that information. What the religious did was, religious leaders did was, they, they, they practiced a form of eisegesis, where they said they couldn't open their mind to who he was, and he wasn't from their group, so he had to be bad. And then they get stuck in this conundrum now. And you see all these debates between Jesus and the religious leaders, and they're losing pitifully. And there's witnesses, and they see this. So they leave the religious system, they start to follow Jesus, and of course they want him crucified because of that. They're starting to lose their power base. Now, we can see this in the science world, can't we? In the last uh, 150 years, you'll hear it's religion versus science. Really, a lot of the early scientists were men of faith, men and women of faith. As a matter of fact, if you go on answersingenesis.org, you'll see a list of hundreds of biologists, physicists, chemists, who all believe in God, in a creator, and that's part of their model. As a matter of fact, I read a lot about Einstein over the years, and he's really the father of, you know, theory of relativity and a lot of theories that we, today we understand, not even his theories anymore, but his fact. Now, there's a lot of stuff about Einstein, and you see it on Facebook all the time, and you kind of got to check it out, because a lot of it's not even true. But the stuff that is true is that Einstein always figured God, the creator, into his model. It doesn't mean he was a born-again Christian. But he felt that he couldn't take his equations and make them work without an outside source. We're not a closed system, so to speak. So he had to, in, in his equations and his constant, he had to figure for a divine creator. And that's what made him so successful. And we still follow his models today. But there are scientists who refuse to believe in God or even as a possibility of a, of a divine creator, and they are woefully inadequate in explaining their scientific theories. Evolution? I talked to you uh, last Sunday before Pastor Jason preached about the intricacies of the human knee, and I went on for a few minutes, and I only listed some of the ligaments and tendons. There are so many of them in there that we missed for decades the anterolateral ligament. You know what I'm saying? All of a sudden, what? After how many dissections? Hundreds, thousands? Now we, we figured there's, one, there's another one in there that we didn't see. Right? So you're telling me that stuff will happen by accident when we're so smart we can't even figure it out? We're still finding things out about the human body? I love when I, when I, and I do it, I believe I do it lovingly. When I debate people who believe in evolution, I love to use anatomy and physiology. That is just my love. That's my the science that I just, I'm just so dreamy about. The way God made us, and even in our fallen state, we're incredible machines. Think about that. We're in a fallen state. One day God is going to perfect us, right? No more pain, no more sorrow, no more difficulty, no more cancer, no more degrading of the body, no more tired, no more probably need for sleep. But even in, in our fallen state, we're an incredible machine. So we have to figure for a creator. We have to do proper exegesis instead of eisegesis. Verse 23. So he called them to him and said to them in parables, 
So Jesus responds to this accusation. He said, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but has an end. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house. Beelzebub is a funny word, isn't it? Beelzebub. (laughs) Some names are just... Beelzebub really was another name for Satan. It literally meant, translation is one, it could have meant Lord of the Flies. Some of these uh, old words, uh, there was a a word that had a, a, a variety in the semantic range that you could use. So Beelzebub is a compound word, can either mean Lord of the Flies or it can mean the master of the house, which is probably why Jesus used this example of the strong man and his house. Because They threw it at him, and he says, listen how ridiculous you guys sound. And he explains it to them. Let's look at this. Any kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. This morning we prayed about what's going on in Ukraine. That is a kingdom that's divided against itself, and it's very sad. People are losing their lives. There's great polarization in the country. There's foreign influence from both sides, the east and the west. And uh, a a lot of people are nervous especially the Ukrainians, about what kind of future that they might have. There is a a, a very polarizing influence inside that country, the faction that's pro-East and the faction that's pro-West. I've got to tell you this, that the United States, we're not there, but we are starting to become fragmented. We are becoming a kingdom divided against itself, and we're really not mentioned in end times prophecy. And that's really sad. There used to be a day where JFK said, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Those days are over. Today, it's what can I get? I deserve. I'm entitled. And what's happening is we're putting ourselves into different subgroups and then getting special interest groups and sending them to Congress to lobby them for money and stuff. And we're going bankrupt because of it. We are becoming a divided kingdom. So much wisdom in the scripture. You won't find any holy book hundred years, thousands of years old, that has, because this is inspired by God's Holy Spirit. We can make, my pastor said to me, he goes, my biggest difficulty when he was teaching me about preaching, he said, my biggest difficulty is knowing not what not to put in the messages, because there's so much that you can put in, and you kind of got to keep it at a certain time period and keep people's attention. But there's so much good stuff in here, it's, it's delicious. Number two, a house divided against itself. Think about people who live in a house. Parents, children, right? Let's say family of five. What if they're all going in different directions? What do you end up with? A very divided house where everybody leaves and goes somewhere else. A word on a divided house when it comes to the church. And I think it's appropriate. Jesus said this, that the gates of hell would not prevail against the church. Now that's in an aggregate fashion because we see churches closed down. We see them divide. We see them split up into other churches. We see them close their doors, right? However, the church at large, because of the Holy Spirit's influence, would not be destroyed. The gates of hell could not destroy it. However, on a local level, there are dumb Christians, and and I'm just saying it, who have nothing better to do than cause problems. Alistair Begg, uh, he has a series on how to make a church ineffective. I listen to those. Very good. 
As believers, we're here. See, you know what the problem is? You show me any decadent society, and I will show you a church that's marginally or a lot affected by the society. It happened in the, in the Corinthian church. That was a bad church. You know why? Because Corinth was a very decadent society, and it, it found its way into the church. So here in the United States, people are fragmented. People are out for themselves. Well, guess what? That stuff gets into the church, and it becomes a problem. As the body of Christ, we're here to, to wonder. You know, we become saved. We wonder what our spiritual gifts are. God reveals it, and we use them to glorify God. And on a local level, we come together. You heard what Pastor Paul said in the uh, announcements. There's a lot of awesome things we do in this community. We just love to give stuff away, food, clothes, whatever it is. We love to minister, and, and the, uh, the government of, of Jamesburg is very friendly with us because they know what we do in the community. But if we've got a bunch of people in the church gossiping, stabbing each other in the back, doing stupid stuff and complaining all the time, guess what? We're not going to have any servants to do anything out there. We're going to be completely ineffective. So when we talk about a divided house, it isn't just a kingdom or a house. It can also be a church. Is that where we want to be, brothers and sisters? No, I don't think we do. So that's something to keep in mind as well. Verse 26, it says, And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he has an end. Brilliant point. You know, would, Satan's going to change his strategy one day and wake up, and I don't even know if angels sleep, but, and go, gee, let me get all my minions to fight against each other. Let me get, you know, it's, it doesn't make any sense, Jesus is saying here. So, you know, he, he kind of looks at their argument and he, and he shows how ineffective it is. Verse 27. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his goods. So the strong man is Satan. He's the master of the house and he guards his goods. What are his goods? All those people that he's deceived, that he's destroyed, that he's pushing them towards the wide path of damnation. And the only way to free them, people in deception, that was me. I lived a lot of my life up until my 20s as a, as a heathen. You know, I was deceived. I thought I was on top of the world. I had a good job. And you know, I bought my first house early, fixed it up, sold it. I thought I was the man. <laughs> but the truth is, I was an idiot. I didn't know anything. I didn't know anything spiritually. And no matter what I did, it didn't fill me. It didn't fulfill me. So Satan had me deceived too until somebody, several people introduced me to the Lord Jesus Christ and eventually it took. Here I am today. Satan is the strong man. There needs to be somebody stronger than him and the average person couldn't do it to bind him so that his goods could be plundered. Those people could be freed. And Christ was the only one that could do it. Now, and that's how we do it today, isn't it, brothers and sisters? How many times, you know, some of you have had these experiences, maybe with a person a situation, maybe when you're alone. And, you know, I've had people come to me and no one wants to say it openly. They'll say it quietly. I think there's a, there's a presence in my home. I think, and, and they're scared. It's like demonic something. And how do we get rid of it? In Jesus' name. Do you believe in Jesus? Yeah, you have the power to cast out demons. The Bible says that. Now, I've got to tell you, I've gone to a few houses and, you know, you, you go there with trepidation because... People explain things to you, and it does seem like there could be an oppressive demonic force in their home or somebody they live with. And, uh, you know, I'll go with another pastor, and it's, it's a little scary. You know, I've been in homes where the heat was on, but it's, it's chilly. It's, you know, it's just bizarre. You know what I don't do? I don't say, all right, 
Pastor Joe from Calvary Crossfields is here, now get out. They laugh at me. I have to invoke the name of Jesus Christ. It's not going to be through any man. It has to be through the power of Christ. In the book of Acts, remember the sons of Siva? They dabbled with a little exorcism, and the demon whooped them. He whooped all seven of them, and they ran away naked. You know, it was very embarrassing for them. You have to invoke the name of Jesus Christ. So Jesus is the strong man that can, or Jesus is the power that can bind the strong man to be able to plunder his goods. Right? It's important. I want to read something to you in Colossians 2, 13 through 15. Colossians 2, 13 through 15. The Apostle Paul speaking. And saying, and you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he, Jesus, has made alive together with him. Excuse me. He, God, has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed, disarmed. Think of somebody in the military when they're disarmed. They have to lay down their arms. Now they're defenseless. He has disarmed principalities and powers. He made a public, a public spectacle of them, triumph, triumphing over them in it. So ultimately, Jesus bound the strong man when it came to the cross. He did it in limited fashion when he would cast out demons. But when Jesus went to the cross, he bound the strong man and really plundered his goods. He emptied, he emptied his house out. Because now through the the cross of Jesus Christ, our sins could be forgiven and we can be free. We can have fellowship with with God Almighty. So that's where it really happened at the cross. 28, last few verses. Mark 13, or Mark 3, 28 through 30. Jesus says, Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they may utter. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation because they said he has an unclean spirit. Now, this is important to understand because there are things in Scripture. I remember me as a new believer that I would read and I wouldn't be able to sleep. (laughs) What if I blaspheme the Holy Spirit? I've been thinking back all the years I've been alive. You know, you just thought, whatever, maybe I'm just weird and nobody else thinks that way. But as a new believer, I wanted to please God. And I want to make sure I didn't do something that kept me out of the kingdom. So... By the time I'm done, everybody, you'll be okay. You know? <laughs> if you're concerned about it, don't worry about it. But understand what it means. So what Jesus did was he takes this and makes a teaching moment out of it. What is the unforgivable sin? How is it tied to the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? And what is blasphemy? Well, that's injurious speech. That's, you know, just, you know what blasphemy is. It's actually uh, blasphemia. It's transliterated into an English word, blaspheme. So the word really hasn't changed from Greek to English, right? Matthew's gospel adds to the mix that blasphemy against the Son of God will be forgiven, but not against the Holy Spirit. Luke's gospel adds, after this chilling statement, in context, Jesus says in Luke's gospel, pretty scary stuff, that you know uh, a, demon, uh, a demon enters a man, he exits a man, goes to dry places, looking for habitation, he sees that the man has been you know, clean, swept up, and he gets seven more demons, more wicked than him. He re-enters the man, repossesses the man, and the last day of the man is worse than the first. It's kind of creepy. It's a real scary portion of Scripture. 
people dabble with, with spirituality. People dabble with the things of God. And they're, you know, going back and forth. And, you know, there's this, this process that happens. So let's talk about this. Context. Jesus just delivered a man from a demonic presence. Okay? And the religious leaders attribute what Jesus did to the works of Satan. That's pretty serious. I mean, people today, they're like, oh, I don't believe. You know, unbelief is not the unpardonable sin. Some people who don't believe 10 years later become believers. The Holy Spirit has a major role in two things. Number one, miracles. When Jesus was on the earth, he would cast out demons and do a lot of uh, powerful works and miracles by the power of the Holy Spirit. Right? The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit were all working in concert in the first century in an observable fashion. The second thing that the Holy Spirit is responsible is revealing sin, convicting of sin, and opening the door for our realization that we need a Messiah to save us and for salvation. The Holy Spirit still does that. As a matter of fact, today, some may be reading the scripture and maybe before today you weren't a believer, but you're, you're actually wrestling. You know, you're looking at me with poker face and you're looking at the scripture and you're hearing it and you're thinking... What's going on inside of me? I'm actually really digging this stuff, you know. I never was exposed to the word before. And God's changing you. The Holy Spirit is revealing things in your life, showing you that you're not complete without a Savior. So that could be going on right now in this very room. You know, you can't see behind the eyeballs, but you have a religious establishment that was supposed to be working for God, representing God, but they were working against God. And that sounds weird, doesn't it? Religion is supposed to bring us to God, isn't it? Well, not according to the scripture. God wants us to have a relationship through Jesus Christ. He doesn't want us to join a religion that suits our needs. Because then we're all getting into heaven by different standards, and God's a fair God. He's a just God. He wouldn't let that happen. Well, people in the world like to hear that, but it's really not fair if you think about it. You know, I see a, a move today to bring us back to religion. And you know what's sad? Among evangelicalism, I'm seeing this stuff come back into the church. Maybe come back into, you know, you, you have a church and you want to get people excited and they bring like liturgical elements back into the church. Ooh, icons, things I can touch, things I can wear. God says, just have a relationship with me. A lot of the young people, they're, they're doing that to, to get their, their senses stimulated. But it's, it really, we need to teach anybody how to really have a relationship with the Lord. There's a book, um, I came across a book by Mark Batterson called The Circle Maker. How many of you heard of it? <laughs> Nobody wants to raise their hand. Don't worry, I'm not going to single you out. Uh, so there's this book, and in the book, this pastor, and it says, his church is the fastest growing church in D.C. It doesn't surprise me. D.C. is a very decadent culture. I talked about that a few Sundays ago extremely decadent. Satan's got his best people down there, okay? So a fastest-growing church in D.C. doesn't surprise me because maybe people are saying, hey, it works for me. So in this book, he says, God is uninspired by our prayers. You know, God listens to our prayers, and some of them he's just uninspired by. Some of his quotes are really off the wall. You've got to do something to get God's attention. So when you're praying, get yourself some chalk, literally, and draw a circle around, your, around the group, and then you pray and you claim big things in that group. In the tarot car cards, there's a card called the wheel where the witch takes a marker and she marks the circle. 
and she does her incantations to demonic entities from within that circle. This guy's off his wall. He's off his rocker, but he's rich because Christian media outlets will sell this garbage. And I'm always the bad guy who has to come up here and tell you about the New Times bestseller. You think the Times bestseller cares about what's good for the, the kingdom of heaven? They don't care. They're a worldly organization. So it's not surprising to me that it's the world, it's the Times bestseller. Do you know who makes false teachers millionaires in American culture? Christians. Christians. Christians buy junk all the time in Christian media. And they're making, the biggest false teachers are extremely wealthy in our society. Not because of the atheists, not because of the unsaved, because of Christians. We're supporting this industry, and it's got to stop. If you hear about a new book or a new thing, ask some questions. Because your 15 bucks that you pay to get that garbage just made that person give him a bigger platform. He'll go on Oprah or something else, and he'll, he'll espouse his ridiculousness. And people will buy into it. Uninspired? When you pray from your heart... And you pour out your heart to God, he loves to hear it. It doesn't matter what anybody thinks it sounds like. That is a real heartfelt prayer. And you know what? For those of us who have been doing this for a while, we have to be careful not to sound polished in our prayers. It needs to come from the heart. Amen, brothers and sisters? Are you hearing me? Okay. So, you know, it's just, it's just disturbing because there's all these trends and there, there's these fires that keep uh, coming up and, and gullible Christians are going after this stuff. And listen, I don't mean any, for anybody to feel bad if that's in your library, but next time, do your homework. Ask somebody. Do a little research because the stuff out there is garbage. And some of it is rooted in occultic pra practices. You know? Chuck Smith, the founder of Calvary Chapel, died uh, not too long ago. And one of the things he said, one of his last uh, utterances was, he says, I fear about the wolves that are rising up in the church. You know, the Apostle Paul said the same thing in the book of Acts. Savage wolves will rise up from, not at the outside, from within the church and steal people away. Amen? We have to know our word. So let's continue. So the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has this major role. Now, I'm going to say this as well. When, you, when the Holy Spirit has this role of convicting us, convicting us of sin and helping us to see the truth and our need for a savior, and you got a group of people who are supposedly representing God, and they're downplaying everything that's the truth, and they're upplaying their group, that's a problem. This, is a, this was a constant thing that was going on. And let me just say this again. Don't be that person who, you're, you're having this wrestling match in your soul right now as you're hearing the word, as you're reading the word. Don't be that person that suppresses, let me use the word extinguish, like a fire extinguisher that God is trying to reach you and, and maybe you have these competing thoughts and you're, you're fire extinguishing it down. You're trying to bring it down. If the Lord is speaking to you through his word, see where he takes you because he wants you as part of his kingdom. He doesn't want you bound uh, in the house of the strong man. So keep that in mind. Don't be that person. So what is blaspheming of the Holy Spirit? It isn't an act that we did. And, and I, I got to be honest with you. If you're sitting here and you're worried that you might have done that, you didn't. You may say, but how could you be so flippant in saying that? Because if you're concerned, then you don't have a seared conscience. You don't have a callousness to the things of God. You don't have a hardening or a deadening. If anybody's concerned about it, then, then that means they're still open to the things of God. And God can still reach you. But there does seem to be a point of no return that only God knows where it is. 
Okay, so please, this is an important subject. If you are concerned that you might be there or you still have questions, please see me after the service because um, this isn't to frighten anybody. It's to make us aware and to fully round us into the things of God and to understand that that kind of stuff is out there. Now, I'm just going to say this, that when we step up to serve the Lord... And it could be in a small way. You're going to get opposition. Those of you who are pastors, pastors' wives, um, you know, ministry leaders and such, even stepping up to serve in some way, ushering the sound booth, when you step up, you'll find that there's this, you you may find an opposition and you, you can't put your finger on it. It's demonic. The devil doesn't want us to serve God. And he has to be the source of all our strength, our life force. He's the one who's going to carry us. We were praying uh, in, in my office, and we, as we do every time before service, and we always ask the Lord, let, fill us with your Holy Spirit. Don't let this be a man-led church. That's not what we want, because they will all come to nothing at some point. When you do step up to serve the Lord, you may receive opposition from within and without. But understand, you're emulating the character of Jesus. Jesus raised up men and women so that when he ascended into heaven, he could count on them to build the church. Jesus is still raising up men and women to use their spiritual gifts to edify the church, to reach the unsaved. And I say this all the time um, to my young adults in in our meeting. I said, you you guys are going to meet people I'm never going to meet. Your peers, your friends in college. You know, so so the, the idea is to pour into them and let them go out in their sphere of influence Maybe some of the folks in, the, uh, in a nursing home or the adult communities, again, to pour into them so they go out and they affect people. So any little thing that you do, stepping up to serve the community with the, with the food deliveries and such, you know, you may knock on their door and we've seen this happen. You don't want any money? No, we don't want any money. Uh, well, I don't, can't believe anybody would do this for me. That is a tremendous thing for the Lord. You don't have to be a pastor. We all have diverse gifts and, and it's all important. So I really want to encourage everybody this morning that... You may receive opposition, but it's going to be the most fulfilling thing you ever do. So consider that and pray about that today. Let's end in prayer. Father in heaven, Lord, we just thank you for your word as always. Your word is super. It's, it's beautiful. It's, it's delicious. It, it fills. It satisfies. And, you know, as the song goes, as, as the worship team was playing, such a tiny offering compared to Calvary. What you've done on the cross, Lord, is just, wow. Sometimes we just need to sit back and meditate on that. Not to be judged for our sins, not to be cast away from God for eternity, but to be in his presence, in his loving presence, not because of anything we did, but because of what Jesus did. You know, before anybody can step up to serve the Lord, they have to know the Lord first. So I would just like to ask, I don't care what age you are, what people might think you're already saved, stuff happens all the time. If you don't know the Lord Jesus and today's your day, today's the day of salvation, like Hebrews says, I would just ask you while the worship team plays to just come up out of your seat. Maybe somebody will walk up with you. Come to the front. Repeat a prayer after me. And it's not about the prayer or this church. God hears you. We're just helping you to, to kind of come together and have that bond with the Lord, to take that first step. He, he put his hand and reached his hand out to you when he died on the cross, but you've got to take his hand. Like a father who puts out his hand to a child. 
the child's got to take the hand of that dad to make the connection. So if, if it's your desire to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I'd ask you to just come up to the front right now and uh, just repeat a prayer after, after me. And, uh, you know, the Lord hears it. And the Lord wants to walk with you all the days of your life. So you come forward if that's your desire.